all of a sudden, string theory went from being a mathematical curiosity to an actual live candidate for which could potentially be uh, the universe around us. It's a logical possibility that the world around us really is described by string theory. And if we had good enough microscope, we could see the little strings as we looked resolved to smaller and smaller distances. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 136. And this special episode is with Andy Strominger, who is Gwil E. York, Professor of Physics and Director of the Center for the Fundamental Laws of Nature at Harvard University. And this episode is special for a few reasons. One, it's the first on the show of many to come that touches on M-theory, which you might not have heard of and which we, we I think I might even be the only person who says M-theory in the podcast, even though it is the subject of our conversation. And that's because M-theory is generally referred to, as Andy mentions as we talk, uh, it's referred to as string theory by those outside of the profession, though more technically, there are five 10-dimensional string theories, um, type 1, type 2A, type 2B, heterotic O, and heterotic E, which combined with an 11-dimensional theory, supergravity, uh, fall under the umbrella of M-theory. And we don't get quite to this level of detail in our discussion. But the the second reason that this episode is so special is that Andy is one of the absolutely key figures in string theory slash M theory. And he solved some massive outstanding problems like that of Bekenstein-Hawking entropy, which we get into. And a third reason this episode is so cool is that we talk about some of the biggest questions in the universe in physics, so singularities, black holes, uh, the unification of quantum field theory, and general relativity. And we start off with Andy's background, then we get into the quote-unquote uh, crisis in physics, which is that aforementioned incommensurability of quantum field theory and general relativity that I just referenced. And then we turn to the basics of string theory, Calabi-Yau manifolds, and the peculiarities, or at least for our intuitions, of extra-dimensional spaces. So two ca caveats, or caveats, I'm going to go with ca caveats worth mentioning. Uh, first, uh, right at the beginning of the episode, the, the first thing I say, I get one of the dates of Andy's publications wrong. And then I, I blame it on Wikipedia. And later on, I, I checked Wikipedia. And in fact, the entry on his career, and I confess, I, I do occasionally use Wikipedia to like get some background biographical details, these sorts of things, right? The entry doesn't even mention a date at all. So it was just entirely my memory that was wrong. So I egregiously and unacceptably besmirched Wikipedia's reputation. I apologize and I will do better. And the second thing worth mentioning is that we talk a bit about the anthropic principle, which we don't actually define unlike 
many, but not all of the other things we discussed. So in the interest of doing that, the anthropic principle is basically the idea that the universe is fine-tuned, fine-tuned the way it is. So the, the particles are such and such, the forces so-and-so, because if they weren't exactly the way they are, then we would not exist to observe the universe. And, and in other words, of course, we observe what we observe about the universe because it would be nonsense to suggest that we observe anything else as that would preclude our existence and hence our our ability to observe these things in the first place. All right. Long spiel. So reviews, comments, likes, please, all those things, they're great. And then without any further ado, I hope, hope, hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Andy. What I'd really like to talk about today is an overview of a field that has been a major part of your work and to which you have in turn made major contributions, and that's string theory. And I'd like to begin with how you got started in the area. So my understanding is that uh, Leonard Susskind here at Stanford and then a couple of other physicists independently arrived at the modeling of nuclear forces with strings around 1970. And then I saw that you got your PhD in 1982. So were you working on early formulations of string theory at that time already? Or how and when did it land on your radar? Because I know that you and your colleague uh, Kumrun Vafa had already made a, a pretty breakthrough contribution by 83. Um. I think your dates are a little bit off. I I think Kumran, um Kumran was a second year. I'm a couple of years older than Kumran. I think he was a second year graduate student then in '83, um, '85 uh, maybe '84, '85. Um, okay, it uh, was the Columbia that, Spaces. That is yeah. totally possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but. Um, yeah, I actually, I'll just interrupt you <laughs> off the bat, but I, I, I uh, was talking to a historian, uh, Norman Neymark at Stanford a couple of days ago. And I, so I think I got that date from Wikipedia and I informed him at the beginning of our interview where his parents were from and what his religion was. And I was totally wrong. So Wikipedia. Okay. Can, this can is a small thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was in, in 83, I was, was when I started to learn string theory. I hadn't done anything in string theory in 83, but yeah. Um, so what was your, ask me your question. Uh, sure, sure. My there's question there's was, so many ways into this into subject. How did I get it? Okay. So I think of string theory really as a tool. Um, it's not a question, um, and it's not a um, the, the question. Whether well, there there are many different questions that physicists, theoretical and experimental, are interested in, and um, the one that I'm that I became interested in and uh, decided to you know de devote my life's work to. Uh, trying to understand is the problem of quantum gravity. And um, 
and that's the you know the problem a very deep problem um it's there uh, quantum mechanics in general relativity aren't consistent without something else and uh, without some kind of framework or at least on the face of it they're inconsistent and we believe that the universe is consistent uh, we, we we have overwhelming experimental evidence for quantum mechanics ordinarily ordin overwhelming experimental evidence for Einstein's general theory of relativity and so there must be some way that these theories fit together and that's a problem that we're going to have to solve sooner or later. And I don't mean by, you know, I mean, by that I mean for sure in the next 500 years, we better solve it. Hopefully we can solve it in the next five years, but you know, uh, it's, it's there. It's not going anywhere. And whether or not it's a smart thing to work on, or whether or not now is the time that we might be able to make progress on this, that is not a question that there's a scientific answer to. All scientists are gamblers. There's a lot of problems that are presented to them, and they have to guess which ones can be solved. You know, if you do which ones could be solved, the game's over. Um, so, as as a graduate student, you know, I kind of assessed the state of, of physics and um, quantum gravity looked to me like the problem that we could, uh, there was a good chance that we could make some progress on it, you know, in my lifetime and maybe even so, you know. Um, now, string theory has a very peculiar history. Uh, as you just mentioned, uh, Lenny was Susskind, other people, Veneziano, Bersaro, uh, uh Josh Schwartz, many people were, 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 were thinking about it, but largely not motivated by quantum gravity at all. And, um, they were they were trying to um, solve the theory of the strong interactions, and Lenny in particular um, made some uh, it had made some important observations about this, the structure of baryons and mesons and their possible relationship to a string, and um, that enterprise of trying to use string theory to understand the strong interactions in a very direct way um, has been good. It, it hasn't been um, spectacularly good. It's not the main way that we think about the strong interactions. It could circle back around and, uh, and, and, and be more useful for that than it is. But where surprisingly, Different problems in physics, you know, it often happens that two problems that you think are different become the same problem or a mathematical method in one problem is applied to another problem. Um, my favorite example of that is um, 
Yang Mills theory. Um, so Yang and Mills, they were trying to understand the relationship between, this is in the 50s, they were trying to understand the relationship between the proton and the neutron. And they proposed a very beautiful theory called Yang-Mills theory, in which proton and neutrons are two faces of the same object, same fundamental object. And it was a clever idea, turned out to be wrong. Um, however, we now know that Yang-Mills theory describes everything else except gravity. So they, they, they found this physical mathematical structure while asking one question, and it turned out to be the definitive answer. It turned out not to answer that question, but it gave a definitive answer to many other questions. So progress in physics is of many faceted, many different directions. And um, so, um, so that's how, what happened with string theory. String theory was, was uh, constructed as a way possibly of understanding the, the strong interactions. Didn't really work for that, but it looks like uh, it, it potentially could work. On paper, it works. Uh, we don't have any experimental confirmation, and in my estimation, are very unlikely to get experimental confirmation for it. Um, but um, it seems to have a lot to say about uh, the problem of, of quantum gravity. And so I, I thought, um, you know, when I was a graduate student, I was interested in quantum gravity. String theory was already around then. I thought you know, I I loved the whole thing of Einstein and his elevators and Bohr and his thought. You know, I I thought that to solve this problem of quantum gravity, we needed some really deep conceptual insight, um, special like special re and and string theory looked like just sort of a jumble of equations. That's how it looked to me at that time, and I hadn't really paid much attention to it, and I thought it was. Uh, a sort of technical exercise. Uh, but then I started to study it. I, I felt I should study it because it was relevant to the problem I was working on. And the more I studied of it, the more I began to realize that there were a lot of beautiful mathematical structures in there that possibly with some modification or whatever could, could be used to solve other problems, which it which it certainly has, um, and um, might you know fit into quantum gravity in 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 some way that we don't uh, either don't fully understand or haven't verified experimentally. So so that's when I started to learn learn about it. Now, um, interestingly. Um, in the early 70s. Um, so, so string theory is a very uh, complex theory with many 
moving parts, all of which demand complete precision of all the other parts. You know, it's a very cohesive whole. And one of the things they were trying to use it to describe the strong interactions, and one of the things was that um, it was found that in order for it to really fully work, you had to have a particle in it um, that looked like it mediated the force of gravity. It 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 it's not it's not happy. It's not self consistent without gravity in it. And the people who were working on it weren't interested in gravity. They were interested in the strong interactions. And, you know, the, the theory was under discussion for five or ten years until uh, uh, Shirk, Schwartz, and Yonea came along and they said, well, wait, maybe we can't use this for the strong interaction, but there's this problem of quantum gravity, which very few people were paying attention to then. And, however, what they believed was at that time in the early 70s was it could describe a theory with gravity uh, and only in 10 dimensions. Uh, but it couldn't, there was no, you couldn't, there was no possibility of incorporating protons, neutrons, um, quarks, or anything like that. So it was thought to be something which in principle was incapable of describing uh, the real world. And, um, and moreover, it was in 10 dimensions. And then what happened, and you asked me about how I got into the field, so I, I started uh, thinking about this and um, uh, discovered that there was a way that you could kill two birds with one stone. There was a way of curling up six of the 10 dimensions. And this used some very cutting edge um, mathematics. Um, and the mathematics of, the, of this was then and still is a, something of very active uh, study. So there was a lot of synergy between the uh, physicists and mathematics beginning at this time and 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 continuing uh, to to the present and you could do two things you could curl up six of the ten dimensions and make them undetectable to ordinary uh, experimental probes uh, thereby leaving you with four dimensions that we could roam around in uh, consistent with our observations and at the, in the process of doing that is a very natural byproduct. One can produce, in addition, all the elementary particles that that uh, we see. Um, so all of a sudden, um, so th this was work I did with uh, Kandelowitz, Horowitz, and Witten. And all of a sudden, string theory went from being a mathematical curiosity to an actual live candidate for, which could potentially be uh, the universe around us. It's a logical possibility that the world around us really is described by string theory. And if we had good enough microscope, we could see the little strings as we looked 
resolved to smaller and smaller distances. And that excited a lot of people. And that that was kind of the uh, beginning of the modern string theory with, you know, large, a lot of, you know, a lot of people interested in it. You better ask me a question. Yeah, sure. So you've already touched on some of the endlessly fascinating aspects of string theory. I mean, 10 dimensions and then the, the six dimensional uh, Kalabi Yao shapes that you alluded to. But for context for our listeners who are less informed of the background physics, I'd like to go way back to where you started and spend a bit more time of the inconsistency of quantum theory and general relativity that motivated your entry into the field. And so as I understand it, though, you'll, I hope, uh, correct and amplify what I say. Einstein's theory of general relativity is extremely successful as a theory of gravity and the massive, whereas quantum field theory, and more particularly the, the standard model of particle physics, accounts for the other three forces, the strong force, which you've mentioned, and then the weak force and the electromagnetic magnetic force, and uh, the microscopic, but that these two theories are incommensurable. And if this is correct so far, then maybe you could elaborate on why or how they're incommensurable. Well, one of the great successes, you know, qu quantum field theory, um, you know, is, you know, arguably the greatest, um, uh, the, 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 the greatest achievement of, um, you know, 20th century physics or maybe physics of all time. Certainly, you know, if you count Nobel Prizes, I don't know what it is, 30, 40, something like that. But, and mm -hmm. the many, many aspects of it. And um, it is the most accurate agreement between theory and experiment in the history of human thought. That is, there are predictions. <laughs> yeah, 14 decimal places. Yeah, the agreement, I mean, it's incredible. And um, and the, they're, of course, chipping away at the last digits. And, you know, to compute the 14th decimal places, you need big supercomputers. And to measure the 14th decimal places, you need giant accelerators. And it just keeps, agree it keeps agreeing. And now, but part of what led to the standard model, um, so there are the quantum field theories are theories which are consistent with um, quantum mechanics, which we can think of as, say, the uncertainty principle. They're consistent with the uncertainty principle. And at the same time, they're consistent with the principle of special relativity, which is that no no disturbance, nothing can go faster than the no message can be sent faster than the speed of light. Now, all of quantum mechanics and the Bohr atom and all that stuff in the early part of the 20th century, great experimental success, of course. Um, those that early part of quantum mechanics was largely developed in the period of a decade or two. And um, but all of that stuff 
was not consistent w- with the the principle of special relativity that nothing can go faster than the speed of light. And making those two things consistent turned out to be very hard. And it also turned out to be, you can't just write down any old theory and make it consistent, but there was an algorithm for for wetting the two things, which is the subject of, you know, I have a whole row in my office of textbooks on this subject of how you do it. And it's a very detailed thing. And it, obviously, it's got to be detailed if it's going to somehow produce these 14 decimal places. Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. any old theory will will um, can be made consistent. And um, it worked for the strong interactions. It worked for the and electromagnetic and the weak interactions. And indeed, it this consistency criterion, you know, the, in the beginning of the 20th century, we didn't know about the strong and the weak interactions. And it, it, the, the consistency demands of putting together special relativity and quantum mechanics played a key role in um, narrowing down the possible theories. Okay, the first thing... Uh, but even before you have agreement with experiment, you, you need self-consistency. <laughs> that is, you have to be yeah. able to, if you don't have self-consistency, you can't predict what the experiment is going to see. And Kelsey's self-consistency turns out to be a fantastically, you know, our universe is a very weird place. And uh, to find a self-consistent theory that... Um, that describes our universe is very hard. And that played an important role and it culminated in the standard model. But gravity was left out of the fun. Um, So, uh, it was never understood how to write down a mathematically consistent uh, theory of quantum mechanics and general relativity. And this had two aspects. Well, let me say three three aspects, three three different ways, undoubtedly related, but three different ways that you could get into trouble. The first is if you just take the uh, if you if you just take the sort of rules that were developed for taking a theory without quantum mechanics and adding the quantum mechanical sauce to it. Um, which worked for this for the strong electromagnetic and the weak interactions, um, you you get infinity. So you would, if you took this seriously, you would say that the quantum corrections to the Earth's orbit around the sun are infinite. And we don't care what Newton said because the quantum effects change it by an infinite amount. Okay, that makes no sense. Right? And um that's the first problem. Pauli no- Wolfgang Pauli noted this problem already in the 50s uh, of, of the Pauli exclusion principle, one of the, one of the fa- founding fathers of quantum mechanics. And uh, then the second one is um, 
Well, the, the, I guess the second one I would say uh, is came from Stephen Hawking's observation in the 70s about black holes. So, uh, gravity, Einstein's theory of gravity, known as general relativity, uh, contains black holes in it. And Hawking famously showed that um, those black holes, nothing, a classical black hole by definition is a region of space-time where the force of gravity is so strong that nothing can get out of it without going faster than light. Uh, and nothing can go faster than light, ergo nothing can get out of a black hole. Now, um, but then quantum mechanically, there's a, there's, a, there's a boundary of the black hole known as the horizon, the region. And quantum mechanically, the uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics says that everything is uncertain. And so, the horizon necessarily has a quantum nature. And so, you can't be too sure whether or not you're inside the black hole. And so, things that are inside the black hole might get out. And, um, and that, that means that a black hole will slowly lose energy because we have to conserve energy. And if stuff is getting out, the black hole has to be losing energy and getting smaller. And Stephen gave a very you know, spectacularly elegant and simple calculation of what comes out. And he said that it looks like a kind of random radiation, hot radiation at some temperature. And uh, what happens then is that the black hole shrinks and disappears, but, um, but what came out of the black hole is unrelated to what went in. And that's a big problem because in physics, the laws of physics assert. Okay, now, by the way, they don't tell you this, um, but physicists believe firmly and absolutely in some completely outrageous things, unshakably, including myself. Um, and one of them is that if you knew everything that was happening right now, um, we, we, we believe that we're all powerful. If we knew all the laws of physics and we knew everything that was happening right now, we would know everything about the future and we could completely reconstruct the past. Not approximately, but if we knew everything and we knew all the laws of physics now, what was going on now, we would get everything in the future and everything in the past. No room for free will. No, you know, it's the absolute thing. Okay, so um, I believe it. I guess I don't know if I really believe it, but I, it's certainly a useful belief, and it's the the, the, the operating principle of of every physicist is that we can we're able to describe everything. You know, if if physics doesn't. Uh, um, you know, the, 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 the end of the movie inexorably follows from the beginning. And if this isn't true, if the laws of physics don't determine the future from the past, what does? Well, okay, you know, um, I, I don't know how even how to think about what an answer to that question would be. 
Um, so I just assume it's true. Um, and But according to Hawking, it wasn't true because it was random. There's some random number generator of what comes out of the black hole and you you didn't know what was going to come out. You also can't run the movie backwards and figure out what was in because it fell into the black hole and dissolved into nothingness. So that's pretty that's pretty scary. Um, and that's okay. So you could you could try to run with what Hawking said and figure out what we're supposed to say about how the universe behaves in the absence of deterministic laws. Um, but people didn't make much progress on that. And for a variety of reasons, uh, including um, uh, insights gained from string theory, most people now think that somewhere there was an error in Hawking's argument and that the past determines the future. But this is obviously a problem in quantum gravity. It's a, it it's an in, looks like an inconsistency coming out of quantum gravity because it's saying that, um, you know, we use black holes and quantum mechanics and we get results that don't don't make any sense. Uh, so, by the way, this might sound like a bad thing, but it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's what we all hope for some puzzle like this because that's where the, these puzzles are. You know the keys. If you, they they provide the keys to our next level of understanding about the structure of, of of the universe. That's certainly been true um, historically, and many people, myself included, suspect that this quantum gravity puzzle, the black hole puzzle, are the thing that is going to um, you know help us understand the universe. I mean, it's amazing how much we understand about the universe already. You know, the uncertainty principle, black hole, you know, it's incredible that the human brain could, the human brain could understand all that. Um, and and it's, it's certainly exhilarating um, to be, you know, to be part of that adventure. But um, so we're, you know, we're hopeful that that this problem of quantum gravity will um, will be useful in that regard. And then the third thing problem with quantum gravity, and this one is a little not quite as sharp as the other two, but quantum mechanics tells you that um, uh, everything is subject to the everything that can carry energy is subject to the uncertainty principle. And we now know that space-time, and I guess we've known for a long time, but space-time itself can carry energy. That's gravitational waves. And therefore, space-time is, is uh, subject to the uncertainty principle. And it's very hard to understand what exactly that means. And, right. and, you know, literally when we teach about quantum field theory, uh, we go to the blackboard. That's our framework. You know, we write down the equations. Space-time is the blackboard for our, you know, and it's fixed there. And it's a blackboard on which, um, on which all the particles and fields of nature 
uh, interact. And uh, but now in in quantum gravity, general relativity, the blackboard itself is getting fuzzy and joining in the fun. And so, what is that supposed to mean? Um, what is the what do, what do we get to hang our hats on? What's our starting point? Um, if 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 the blackboard is uh, itself part of the circus, so um, that's what you know. These are very conceptually. It's conceptually challenging and it's mathematically challenge challenging. Um, There are about a hundred places where we could go into more detail, probably more uh, jitters of microscopic space, for instance. And I'm actually somewhat surprised that you think the sort of Laplacian idea of determinism is really so crazy, or maybe you think it's crazy to maintain in light of quantum indeterminacy. But okay, you've you've sort of alluded to Bekenstein Hawking entropy, and that that's some foreshadowing, though, of what hopefully we'll get to. But just as another maybe concrete example of where things break down, and since, as I just said, I know you've done a lot of work in this area, how or, or why do the singularities, uh, though maybe there aren't singularities, at the center of black holes stand out as something like paradigm cases where we're really left in the lurch because of the incompatibility of QM and general relativity? Um, well, I, I, I don't know that... Um, you know, a singularity per se is... I don't know that that is the heart of the problem. Um, a singularity per se is, uh, you know, some of the feel, uh, the class of, there's a classical singularity inside a black hole. And um, in principle, you might just think that, you know, all, all equations are approximate. Um, because we don't know all the laws of physics. We, as I was saying a mo moment ago, we think there are some exact equations, we just don't know what they are. Um, and so it could, a singularity in principle might just be a sign that uh, we're using some approximation to the equations, which which needs to be corrected. We, we need we need to take into account more terms. So that in and of itself is not is not the most serious problem. The more serious problem in quantum mechanics and black holes is the one I said about the the evaporation and determinism. So this seems to be, and importantly, you might ask the question. Um, well, maybe there it's because of some approximation we're using. And that's a very important question. Are we getting these seemingly contradictory results? Um, because we're, our approximation isn't, isn't good enough. And that might be, 
That might be right, but Hawking did give what seemed to be a very robust argument that our approximation was good enough, that that, that was addressed. Um, and you never have to go to, to the singularity to, um, to, to derive the contradiction. And so the singularity, you know, it's behind an event horizon. We can't, we can't see it. So yes, it's an important thing to think about, but its final role is, is not, uh, is not clear to us now. So I'm I'm sort of surprised by this answer, which means that I'm wrong about something, which is totally to be expected. Oh, so you maybe... might get, no, no, no. You might get a different answer from somebody else. Uh, that's the great thing well, about. <laughs> Can I try to rephrase or expand on my question and see if we find something else? So the the singularity, the black hole is predicted by general relativity, and. It is an extremely massive object, but it's also microscopic. And the notion... Well, the, the issue of a singularity, of course, comes up before quantum mechanics. So classical black holes have the singularity in the middle of them. And uh, yeah, this... So there certainly is a question of how we're supposed to think about that singularity. And people are bothered by it to different degrees. Einstein was very bothered by it and uh, thought that black holes didn't exist because the singularity was uh, impossible to actually produce. Um, but yeah, go on. Well, I, I guess another problem, and then getting back to the Bekenstein-Hawking entropy, my understanding is that one of the reasons that black holes aren't expected to have entropy in the first place is that the measure of disorder is directly connected to the amount of possible microstates of any given configuration. But if a black hole is as small as it is predicted to be, then there's only one possible microstate. So it shouldn't have high disorder at all. And that's another place where the microscopic and the massive really conflict. Right. So there's something, there's something, um, there's a, a famous phrase due to John Wheeler that black holes have no hair. And this is something right. you get from the Einstein equation. So if you have a bunch of matter that uh, gets drawn together by gravity, it forms a star. You know, there are many, many stars uh, in, the, in the universe, and there are presumably many, many with the same or almost the same mass as our sun. But each one of them is different in myriad different ways. They'll have different chemical composition. So if you zoom in with the microscope, you'll see different atoms moving in different directions. And uh, so they, they, they differ in many, every, every one of them is completely 
different. Black, a black hole is not like that. Every black hole with a given mass and spin, they can also have spin, is exactly the same as a solution to the Einstein equation. So that is, um, John Wheeler described that by saying black holes have no hair. And since they, they're all exactly the same, not just approximately the same, but like exactly the same. And this can, this statement can be made mathematically precise and there are a number of mathematical theorems around it, uh, which give more heft to this uh, statement. So if they're all the same, you know, if you want to store information in your computer, you need a bunch of, you need a bunch of gigabytes, which could chips, which could be flipped up or down and you could choose flipping this one up, this one down, many different configurations of a computer. That's how you just store different information in it. But how do you store it in a black hole if every black hole is of the same mass is exactly the same? And that um, was in very sharp contradiction to an indirect inference of uh, the work of of Hawking and Bekenstein, uh, that really Hawking, that that black holes uh, have a temperature and things with temperature and energy, as we learned back in the 19th century, they have something called entropy, which is just the, uh, they have some gigabytes in them. They have some storage capacity. They have to have many different configurations. Now, if you have like a hot steam in a pot, you know, a lot of little water molecules, H2O molecules bouncing around in there. And the heat is related to the fact that they can bounce around in many different ways. That can be made uh, very quantitative. And um, so to have heat, you need a lot of different possible configurations. You need gigabytes. And um, so uh, Hawking's calculation applied that black holes have an entropy, and there's a very precise formula for it. Um, the classical calculations say that they don't have an entropy, so that's that's a puzzle. And that puzzle, I, you were probably about to ask me this, that puzzle was mathematically solved in some cases in a very robust and detailed way using string theory. And so that was kind of a turning point in our in our thinking about black holes. That's what Vafa and I did. In the interest of eventually, quickly, hopefully getting to string theory, there was one other motivating factor that you didn't mention when I initially asked you why you got into string theory, uh, because you were interested in reconciling quantum theory and gravity. That I'm curious about, because I know it's a motivation for a lot of other people who work in string theory. One person that comes to mind is Andre Lind Linda. I'm not sure if it's Linda or Lindy here at, at Stanford, but that is fine tuning. And I didn't, I didn't pick it up in on looking at any of your paper, papers, but how do you think of the apparent fine tuning of the universe? Do any particular aspects of this stand out for you? And is it at all a motivation for your pursuit of string theory or you don't really think about it? 
Um, fine-tuning. Which which fine-tuning are you talking about? The cosmological constant or the... Not just the cosmological constant, but... Not just the cosmological constant, but but why the forces have the strength that they have, the particular assortment of subatomic particles we have. If, and if any of these things were different, uh, some are more sensitive than others, life wouldn't arise. So there is a question of why things are the way they are, why we find ourselves in a universe that supports life like us. Yeah. So I guess this this is, you know, uh, this is an old problem. Um, uh, I, I think Dirac called it the large numbers problem. Ratios of, you know, why is, if we take the ratio of uh, the Planck mass, which is the mass of a black hole whose short shield radius equals its uh, Compton wavelength, to which it's sort of a basic uh, mass scale in physics to the mass of a proton. You know that's that's a that's a that's a huge number. Uh, it's like ten to the twenty or something. And then we can take the ratio of that to the cosmological scale, another huge number. And um, so when you have these numbers. Um, that are so big, you know, if you, if you write down, take a piece of paper and write down the laws of physics as we understand them, there are going to be ratios of numbers which are, you know, 10 to the 20 or more, you know, in case of a cosmological constant, even more. And that, uh, you know, that demands an explanation. Uh, we'd like to know why. Why is the ratio of 10 to the 20 not 10 to the 15, let alone 5? You know, if you throw a couple, you know, if you grab some, if you, it, it, oh, what's, what's a good example? Um, m most numbers would, would ordinarily be 1. If you, if you balance, your checkbook. If you write checks and you spend money at the end of the month, um, the you know the um, the difference between what you earned and what you spent is is not going to be. Uh, hopefully, it's a number of order ten to the twenty. It might be one. It might be it might might be a factor of ten. It might be a factor of hundred. Maybe even a factor of thousand. It's not going to be a factor of a trillion, 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 trillion. And if it is, you'd say, wait, I, I think I made a mistake in my uh, computer program or however I calculated this. But uh, we're pretty sure there isn't a mistake that these numbers differ by some huge amount. And we'd like to explain that. Now, there's been a lot of brilliant work. Hey, coming up with explanations why it would be normal and expected for this to be true. Some of it involves supersymmetry. Some of it in, involves the anthropic principle. And I would, I, I think it's fair to say that um, 
despite the uh, brilliant, first of all, the huge amount of work that's far more work has gone into this question than into into the problem of quantum gravity, far more. And um, and so, and, and 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 largely because it has to do with things that we measure, and we might think there could be some prediction or or something coming out of it. I think it's fair to say that the reward to effort ratio in this enterprise has been extremely low. That despite the clever ideas and the approaches and so on and so forth, we we just don't understand it. If I had an idea about to explain, you know, so that's 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 why this is why uh, you know science is not a science; science is an art. If I had an idea how to explain why the cosmological constant was so small, I'd stop everything I was doing and I would, I'd cut off the phone call and I would go and work on it. You know, I don't have an idea, and I actually, my own view, though lots of people are working on it, nothing looks very promising to me. And of course, I could be wrong. You know, I'm just guessing. Um, I don't think the, you know, you alluded to the anthropic principle. No, it could be right. Uh, it's not. It's not a logically inconsistent thing, but it it not only has to be right. It, you have to be able to do something with it. You have to be able to make a prediction. You know, um, it, it's not enough to explain something you've already measured. That's not a. I'm not saying what's right and wrong in science, but as a, as a, I would say incontestable sociological fact. If you come up with a theory that explains something that has already been measured, that's not enough to confirm the theory. You have to make a prediction, tell somebody to go to measure it, and then they have to come back with something that agrees with you. Some famous example of this was the, uh, you know. Procession on Mercury's perihelion, which was measured by Leverrier in 1859, to be uh, off from the Newtonian prediction by one part in a hundred million. And you know the planetary orbit. You know, uh, Newton was almost exactly right. <laughs> he was off by one part in a hundred million, right? And, and you got to admire these guys. Okay, so that sat there and somebody said, ah, you know, okay, it's only one part in 100 million. There's probably some dark matter, which by the way is now used to explain everything that we don't understand. There's probably some dark matter. <laughs> that or aliens. That or, or aliens, right. There's probably some dark matter floating around out there that we don't know about and it's moving, it's affecting Mercury. It, that's the one part in 100 million effect. And everybody was, they convinced themselves that this dark matter theory was correct. So when Einstein came along and gave the real explanation, um, nobody was interested. They're like, are you kidding me? You're telling me that space-time is curved and your evidence is that 
<laughs> Mercury's perihelion is off by what part in a hundred billion? Uh, but then they listened when he said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And if you look at the next solar eclipse, you watch the star go by, the position is going to move in the sky. And I'm, Newton would have told you it was going to move this much, and I'm saying it's going to move twice as much. And, and, um, and that turned out to be, that turned out to work. You know, so that was a prediction, um, experimental prediction. So, um, the anthropic principle, maybe it's explained, because if you explain something that you already know, it, it's already been measured. People are suspicious that you've cooked the books, that you, you went out and searched for it. You, you're not finding something new, that you went, you went out and cooked the books. You you cooked the books. So uh, Einstein knew he didn't cook the books, but he wasn't able to convince anybody else that he hadn't until he made a prediction. So I don't see the anthropic arguments leading to a robust, measurable prediction that will persuade the. So I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to go that far. Um. I don't really know whether I think it's right or wrong. Uh, you know, um, you know, they tried to use the anthropic principle to explain the periodic table. That um, if the elements didn't have just the right weights, you wouldn't be able to have life, and so on and so forth. And this was the reason for the different atomic weights. Um, and. And then, of course, you had the Bohr atom, which, and no, nobody was interested in the anthropic principle anymore. Um, so I, I think it's in a, I think it's an important problem. Lots, it's not, it's not what I, um, I, I don't want to dismiss the problem. Every once in a while, I think about it to see if something I've learned in the last. Uh, you know, five years triggers some approach to it, or but I don't, um, I don't sit there and bang my head against it. I bang, I bang my head against the black hole problem because that one keeps, it keeps, it moves when you bang it, and it, and it seems like we, <laughs> it seems like we keep learning more, and I have a feeling that we're making progress on it. And, and I think you that that would be the one thing that everybody would who works on it would would agree on that we're making progress. They wouldn't agree on what the progress was, <laughs> but but they would they would they would agree on, on a few things. They would agree on a few things, but they would disagree on. Hmm. Well, again, hopefully we'll get there, and I can ask you about how different people would understand the progress. But for now, or at least uh, 20 or 30 minutes ago, you mentioned that our universe is a very weird place. So returning to that and at long last now, the basics of string theory. And I'm going to leave M theory and zero slash two plus dimensional brains aside for now, unless you think it's important to introduce though. But for the time being, just one, what is a string? And then how basically are they to be reconciled with the already 
extremely uh, 14 decimal point successful standard particle model, or to put it uh, in other words, what's the relationship between strings and point particles? Well, so um, one of the interesting things about uh, string theory is that it can be um, described from many different uh, equivalent viewpoints. There are many there are many different ways of arriving at string theory. It's kind of like all roads lead to Rome. You know, people have tried to construct theories which general, you know, and uh, there are many different descriptions of it. And, but the first one involves strings. And it's an odd thing that, um, it's an odd thing that we still call that it is still called, um, especially in the general public and uh, general discussion, that, that, that this big theory is still called string theory. Um, working theoretical physicists like myself don't use the word in quite the same way that it's used in it in the press because the part that is directly related to strings is is only a small piece of this big mathematical structure that of the space of possible quantum field theories and general relativity and black holes and all these different ideas which are not separate ideas but are tied together in many different beautiful ways, often involving profound uh, mathematics. And so string theory is just a little corner, but somehow that corner has the whole enterprise of the, the majority of what uh, theoretical physicists and mathematical physicists uh, have been doing for the last 40 years has been lumped together under the heading string theory. Okay, so, but it did start as the idea that um, if you, um, uh, replace, you know, in, in quantum field theory, which is the theory that's been tested to 14 decimal places, um, the basic object is a a quantum particle which moves around and interacts and and uh, they scatter electrons and protons they make up atoms and everything so that these particles actually if you had a very very powerful microscope you could see that they aren't actually uh, point-like objects but they're little loops of string and Loops of string, and this weirdly solves the infinity problem. This makes quantum. <laughs> this this just replacing, well, in a very specific way. There are very prescribed rules about how you do it, 
But replacing um, the notion of a particle with a string leads you to a theory without the infinity problem uh, that Pauli had. Um, So, yeah, so that's what a string is. Now, a string can do different things, right? If you have a little string, so particles don't have much structure. They might have a spin that could point up or down or charge, but they don't have a lot of structure. But strings can do all kinds of things. They can, you know, vibrate in a figure eight, or they can do this, or they can do that. And if you look at it from far away and unable to resolve that that fine structure, what has been amazingly shown is that the strings can, to the observer who can't see the fine detail, um, the string can masquerade as any one of the particles in nature, the electron, the quark, the neutrino, the photon, even the graviton. Uh, so that's a that's a really very striking mathematical uh, mathematical fact that the string ca- that the, 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 the costume closet of the string, uh, re- contains costumes which, which <laughs> look like everything that we've, we we've we've actually uh, seen. Now, this doesn't mean that the world is made of strings. It just means that it's a logical possibility. Hmm. And I think you mentioned that when we were talking about part. Uh, uh, point particles, the they 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 don't resolve into anything. With our, they just look like points, but they have some other qualities like mass and charge and spin. And I'm wondering how the mass and the energy, for instance, of a string's vibrational pattern are connected, so that we end up if it if it vibrates in some certain way, we have a particle with a mass. If that question makes makes enough no, sense. No, no, totally. I, I want to use another analogy. It's like, uh, you know, a guitar string, right? You pluck the, uh, the, e, the top string, the E, and it makes a certain note, and then you put your, your finger on the fret and pluck it, it make, makes another note. So one string, guitar string, vibrates, interacts with the air, sends out sound waves. It can, one string is capable of sounding different, can make many different sounds. In fact, if it were a really good string, it could make infinitely many sounds because there are infinitely many, a perfect string. There are infinitely many harmonics. It could make infinitely many different sounds, higher and higher harmonics. Similarly, a fundamental string in string theory, depending on how it vibrating, interacts differently with light and it will look different. So that is how they a, a string can look like uh, different particles. Now, there is, you just asked me, how do we relate these things? Well, there's a formula. It's a very, it's a complicated formula. It's a very, you know, take, you know, 
if you when you teach a course in string theory, it's they have to have, to have had quantum field theory and relativity beforehand, and then it's a couple of weeks before you could write down that formula. But there is definitely a formula which tells you exactly what the string string does. Okay, and there are two deeper questions here that I have. So I can understand how. So, so bosons are the sorts of particles that carry what we think of as forces. So photons are the bosons for the electromagnetic force. And I can understand, given the picture you've just described, how a vibrating string will manifest as a photon. But something that I, I don't understand is if in the standard model, the Higgs boson is what gives particles their mass. Why, how an, a string independently of the Higgs boson, so uh, a Higgs, uh, a string that will become an electron can have a mass independent of the string that represents the Higgs boson. Or and again, maybe this this question might be confused because I don't I I haven't read anything about this question. It's just something that occurred to me as I was reading and thinking. Um, but maybe you can elaborate or tell me that I'm just mixed up somewhere. Well, I don't think the answer to this question is very different in quantum field theory than it is in string theory. In other words. Um, there's a limit of string theory. There's some limit in which you just look at, uh, you sort of think about the theory on longer distance scales where you can't see the strings, and then it reduces to quantum field theory and what, what we know and love. And if you wanted to explain how the Higgs bosons give particles a mass, it wouldn't buy you anything in string theory. So, string theory can have Higgs bosons and the Higgs bosons can give masses, um, but um, those are all, you know, the basic reality in string theory would be the strings and, uh, you know, other things are approximate, right? So, um, and they're all, only in some approximation scheme do they do they make sense? And so, um, if you were trying to answer this question, the answer wouldn't really be different. It wouldn't use string theory. It would just use the usual ideas from particle physics. You would reduce the string theory system of equations to the particle theory ones and then uh, you would you would you you would just sew in the particle theory explanation okay and then my last mass related question is the mass of the particle that is a string is determined by the vibration of the string does it just make no sense to ask what the mass is of a non-vibrating string? Um, no, that that um, 
Yeah, yeah, no, that that question makes sense, um, but it would depend. I mean, I'm I'm taking a little bit of liberty here in translating your questions into a more precise mathematical one, but um, but I, I I think that you could say that. Um, the massless particles in nature, like the photon, uh, the graviton, their examples, they can be thought of as examples of strings that aren't vibrating in, in their kind of lowest energy state. And then, as I understand it, in the standard particle model, um, point particles like the electron don't decompose into anything they're they're primitive are does it also make no sense to ask what strings are made of they're just primitive yeah that that is a that is a very interesting question and it it it, it ties into something a little bigger and and I think it's the kind of thing you're asking me about. So let me kind of enlarge your question a little bit and then, please, then answer please. it. So of course there's been a a, a a history in theoretical physics of the so-called reductionist program. So we started out with, you know, fluids and gases, and then we learned that those were made of molecules, and molecules were made of atoms, atoms were made of protons uh, and, and electrons. And um, and then protons are made of quarks and gluons. And so okay. So does this process ever end? So first of all, this was kind of many people would view this as what the frontiers of theoretical physics are. You know, learning, understanding the laws of nature at shorter and shorter distances. And some people, um, indeed, in 1985, when no, so in in one sense, the answer to your question is no. The string theory can't be made of strings can't be made of other things because there are two two ways of saying this. One is if they were made of other things, if that's we have to correct the equations some somehow. And the consistency of string theory is so exquisitely uh, precise and finicky that we, we, we can't modify them in one iota. No other theory in the history of physics was like this. You know, you, if, you, if you take in quantum field theory, you can have three quarks, you can have five quarks, you can, you can have neutrinos, and more neutrinos, you know, whatever. You know, you can add more stuff. You maybe some stuff you thought wasn't there. In string theory, there's this. You, you it's 
it's a kind of an all or nothing proposition. You can't monkey with it. So, so this could potentially mean, and th th there's another, another problem that you would have is that, uh, so we did this computation of, uh, the entropy of a black hole using string theory or in stringy universes, which our own may or may not be one, but at least in some stringy universe, there's some way of making sense of, 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 of what Hawking did. Beckenstein and Hawking. Now, we got very precise agreement. So you could say what they did was predicted how many gigabytes there are in a black hole. And Vafa and I actually counted them and they agreed. Now, if the string has more structure, there would be more gigabytes, right? More configurations. And so you'd be in big trouble. So there are many different ways of saying that the answer to your question has to be no. This very different, there was never an argument like this in any other theory that you'd reached some kind of end. And that, that, would, that was, I guess, that was philosophically very interesting. And so many people thought, okay, we've, we've reached the end, and I was not one of them, and I, I'm not, but many people um, uh, say, okay, with string theory has the potential that it's the end of the reductionist program. We learned that, you know, molecules were made of atoms and atoms made of electrons, protons, protons made of quarks, and finally we reached the end and we're done. And that wrapping up all of physics is maybe at sight. Um, now, I had a lot of uh, conversations with, with Steve Weinberg, probably the, the most eloquent champion of the reductionist program. Um, you know, that, that this is what physics is. And somehow, okay, it could be um, a really wonderful man and a great scientist who sadly passed away last year. And, um, you know, okay, it, it could work that way, but it doesn't feel right to me. You know, I, it seems there's always one mystery begets another mystery. And would we understand everything there is to understand about string theory? There'll be support questions that we'll have. And there's lots of things left hanging. How did the universe begin? You know, why are we in 40? You know, there's lots of things left, left hanging. And so I, 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 I said to Steve, I, you know, uh, why do you think we're ever going to find the end? I mean, are we just going to have more questions? He says, what would it even mean to know all the laws of physics? That just sounds really strange. And, and he said, well, that's what they used to say about the Nile. Now we're going to find the end of the Nile. Explore the Nile, explore the Nile. Everybody thought that there was no end to the Nile. It just went on forever. And then finally they found it. That was it, you know? And so we don't know what it, that's... Maybe we'll understand everything about physics. That's where the 
the word which I don't like, theory of everything. You know, could this really be a theory of everything? I, I don't know. But for now, we're not in trouble. For now, there's lots of stuff we don't understand. Whether it could happen, um, we don't. We don't really know. But there's another important wrinkle in this, independently of that, is while you can't. It's this was an interesting wrinkle, and it's a good example of how string theory forces you. You know, its equations kind of drag you along and open your mind to different ways of thinking about things. And so what turned out to be, what we found is that actually string theories are not the fundamental entity of string theory. They're one of many ways of describing some big structure. So it, 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 um, it, you know, so there are, there are things that you can do to string theory to make all the strings disappear. And you're left with some other kinds of objects, brains and other kinds of weird objects. And so strings are not fundamental in string theory. And we don't know what is fundamental. You know, it's, it's like, um, you know, we can, we can, uh, start in Boston and describe the road system by giving all the, uh, how far you go on each road and how many turns you take to get all, all the other cities in the United States. But that doesn't mean that Boston is fundamental. Uh, we could also start it in, 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 in Pasadena or, or Palo Alto or St. Louis or whatever, you know, and, and, um, that doesn't mean that, you know, Boston is the end of the world or the beginning of the world or anything like that. It's just where we started describing from. And strings play that, that same role. And what is even, I think, even more profound is even the idea, and this is a little harder to explain, but related to the holographic principle, that somehow the, the, the laws of physics, uh, we the old way of thinking is somehow the laws of physics are written at short distances where we can't see. And then we work out their consequences for longer distances. Who said that's how it has to be? Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the laws of physics take their simplest form if you describe them out at infinity and work your way back in. And in fact, we're being led to that kind of thing. So just as we thought we were getting to the end in some sense, of course, we have to, to get to the end, we also have to do experiments. That, ah, that's important. You know, the theorists are kind of racing ahead of experiment now because experiments have gotten so difficult and, and expensive, not because we don't think they're important. But we're doing, we, we, we do what we can and it looked like there could be sort of an end to the laws of physics in the form of strings, but then it kind of blew up into our face and sent us back, back to long distances. And who knows, maybe this problem you mentioned an hour ago about the cosmological constant, why is it so small? 
There are things we don't understand at the biggest distance scales too. And maybe we have to totally reformulate. That's my kind of hope is that the cosmological constant problem is an indication that there's something we really don't understand about not, it's not just short distances we don't understand, but the biggest distances are we understand the distances we live in. And we have trouble both understanding very short distances and very long distances. And maybe those are somehow related. Okay, that is, I shouldn't be saying that's not a podcast. I mean, this is all, you know, this is all <laughs> things I think about late at night. But, you know, it's, it, um, I don't, yeah, but anyway, I don't think we're anywhere near the end. Um, really, I think we're at the beginning, you know? And uh, Well, a, f a few things, or at least one thing is that uh, you mentioned Weinberg. He's, he's one of those dream guests that, very unfortunately, I just missed by starting my, my show a little bit too late. But two things you, you said that are really important that one, the theorist is racing ahead of experiments. And the second thing is that the consistency of string theory is so, so sensitive as you put it, the it's all or nothing. And the work with Vafa you referred to counting the, the gigabytes in a black hole was a huge advance for string theory and is strong evidence for the theories M theory, maybe is what I should I say, should say. Right. Um, so it's, it's very important value. if you're in a field. Okay. The best thing of course is to have experiment, but, but if you don't have an experiment, it might be good to just go home and cry. I'm not going to just go home and cry. I'm going to sort of do what I can. And, and some people will think no problems of this magnitude could be solved without experiment. They might be right, but you know, we're trying. And you don't know what the future of science is going to bring. My view is you don't know what the future of science is going to bring, how it's going to proceed. People use the history of science to justify various approaches and stuff. But again, you, you know, so many different things are, have happened that you could. So everybody, I think what it takes is every curious mind looking at the facts before them, thinking about what they, how they can contribute, what they can, can do. And we just have to blanket all possible approaches and we'll get through eventually. And we don't know where the break is, is going to, um, the, the, the break is, is, is going to come. Um, Sorry, what was your question there? Well, I didn't get to it. I didn't get to it, but I'm I'm about to get to it. What I was going to say is that that the solution or the resolution to this Bekenstein-Hawking black hole entropy problem is immensely valuable, but it doesn't directly doesn't directly demonstrate the existence of strings, which is still far from my understanding is that it's far from generally accepted. What I've heard from a lot of astrophysicists on an unrelated note is uh, 
with regard to certain extraterrestrial speculations. They say it's not aliens until it's aliens. And I have the sense that a lot of physicists have something similar in mind. They just think it is not strings until it's strings. And you said a few minutes ago that if we had a powerful enough microscope, we could observe strings, but unfortunately we don't have that microscope. So even though this might be purely hypothetical, given constraints of funding or energy, how might strings be directly observed or detected? Yeah, um, you're going to get very different answers to this question from um, from people that you interview, and um, I, 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 I like think I, I, I don't think my view is really, um, you know, I have kind of a minority view. And so what happened was, um, uh, you know, string theory as a, as, a, as a theory of quantum gravity and so on, as we discussed at the beginning, was discovered in the early 70s. And then, um, but it was thought that it, in principle, was incapable of describing the real world. And what one way of summarizing uh, what happened in the eighties was it was found in in you know around eighty five where there was a kind of big explosion of 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 interest um, was that in principle it could actually describe the real world, and not only could it describe the real world but it it wasn't very much of a stretch. You didn't have to stand on your head. The, 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 the structures that we saw, we see in the real world come very naturally out of string theory. So it's always a good thing. You know, you don't want to make, you don't want to have one theory which solves um, every time you have a new problem, you make a new theory. You, you want a new theory to solve a number of problems. You know, you should be putting it, you should be getting out more than you put in. So string theory, you might have thought in the 70s it was constructed some structure that was dictated to solve this infinity problem in quantum gravity. But now if that same structure also produces quarks and leptons and parity violation and generations and all that kind of thing, then, then, um, then that's exciting. And then, of course, it's also to link back to what you were saying a minute ago. It, it's exciting that the same structure also um, can solve the problem of counting the gigabytes. So one thing is you're, you're getting out more than you put in. Uh, now, in the eighties. Uh, when it was realized it could describe the real world, there was a lot of excitement and we didn't really understand how many ways, one way of saying this is we didn't really have a very good understanding of how many possibilities there were from getting t from 10 dimensions to six dimensions. That is, I'm simplifying a little bit here, but 
how many Calabiao spaces there are. And um, if there had been, so when, when I first realized that Calabiao uh, spaces could be used to get string theory from 10 dimensions to four dimensions, I didn't know very much math then. I was actually friends with Yao. I hadn't really worked with him, but we were friends and I remembered some things he said. And I knew that there was only one Calabiao space in four dimensions, but we needed a six dimensional one. And I went to the library and I, I took out his paper which I could barely read. I didn't know any algebraic geometry then. And, and I uh, saw that there was one Calabria uh, space that was six-dimensional. There was only one mentioned in the paper. And I thought maybe that was the only one. And if that had been true, um, uh, there would have been a, a huge amount of uniqueness in string theory. And there is, in some sense, uniqueness, but but uh, but before we published our paper, um, you know, Yao had told me he thought there were tens of thousands of them, and now the number and kind of cousins that can also be used has gotten enormous. And so, um, there is no way, there is no obvious way to, um, um, you know, experimentally verify string theory ex short of building an incredibly powerful microscope and seeing them directly. Now, well, but hold on a second. So people, but people didn't give up on that idea that um, you could somehow make direct predictions from string theory. I gave up on it. It, it, it seemed unlikely. Uh, there, I mean, rational people uh, that I would disagree with, but I don't think they're stupid. I just don't think it, that they're, you know, um, they're balancing the facts right, could disagree about whether it will someday be possible to make predictions from string theory. I don't think so. I don't think we're, we could get, you could get lucky, you could find some generic imprint from string theory. Um, but I gave up on the idea in 1987. So I, I haven't thought since, and then I was in a very small minority. Um, but now lots of people would agree with me. So I don't think that string theory is that we're going to measure strengths. Yet, I mean, you can ask me, why am I working on it? I can answer that question. But um, I just, I don't think that we're going to, I'm glad that other people are trying to do it. I don't think it's stupid to try to do it. Uh, if nobody else were doing it, I were, might feel obligated to do it. But I, I think it's, I think it's a losing I'm try. I, I work on problems. I think I could make progress on, and um, right. I don't think making experimental 
contact, uh, sadly, is 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 going to be possible for string theory. And I think we don't know um, how what string theory how it will fit in. Um, and my my feeling, and also there's a I think a false dichotomy out there that string theory is either right or wrong. And I it's I don't think it's a black and white thing. The, the real question is whether string theory is useful and whether we've learned good things about it from it. You learned useful things from it. And I I want to go back to what uh, the example I gave in the very beginning of the Yang Mills theory. Yang Mills Yang Mills theory was wrong. We know now it's wrong. You know it does not explain the relationship between the neutron and the proton. It explains everything else. Yang and Mills didn't mention that, <laughs> but you know so. It explains it explains everything else. They they didn't quite see how it fit in. So I think there's plenty of room, and it has already happened to some extent that string theory will that the space of possibilities about how our subject might develop is is really big, and we can't map it out now. And we're trying to find problems we think are important and interesting, like the black hole problem, and try to make everything uh, fit together and explore the space of possibilities. And it's a huge, you know, it's a massive undertaking. Um, you know, I like to talk about uh, black holes. I'm very interested in black holes, obviously. You know, Schwarzschild found the black holes in 1915. Took a hundred years to see them. It took fifty years to for people to be convinced they exist as mathematical objects. Another fifty years to for the world to, you know, uh, really uh, believe that they're up there uh, in the sky. We're still struggling with their quantum nature. So these problems are are big problems. They're exciting problems. They're deep problems. But they 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 take a long time, and we can't we we don't do very well. You know, if you if you had asked the founders of quantum mechanics what quantum mechanics was good for, it's too bad nobody did. But um, how quantum mechanics, how it's changed the world, and the technology, how it fits in together with relativity, it's. It's a wild story that that they wouldn't they wouldn't have dreamed of, you know, in in the in the tens and twenties, the early part of the twentieth century, and um, I think the way that we'll look at string theory in a hundred years will be very different. The, and by that I mean this whole big body of knowledge that we call string theory uh, in a hundred years will be very different uh, than how we look at it now. But 
I would I would bet a lot that it will be important, that it will be a piece of the puzzles that we have put together that I can prove it, but I'm betting my life's work on it. <laughs> well, I have a, a, a couple of things to say. One, you said I, I might ask why you choose to work on string theory, given what you've just said. But I think I can answer that myself. Uh, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. But given given what you said earlier, you chose to work on string theory because it's a it's a tool. And we can see how that plays out in your career. I mean, it, it solved or resolved the Bekenstein-Hawking entropy problem that had eluded more classical or quantum approaches to physics for 25 years. And this isn't a new approach by you, this sort of instrumentalism. I mean, Aristotle was an instrumental for ge instrumentalist about like geometrical figures for geometers. You didn't have to think that this was a real sort of platonic thing that you were drawing or aiming Interesting at. Interesting analogy. I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Nice analogy. <laughs> to be able to use it. Uh, but Or Leibniz, for example, in the calculus, he did not believe It's very hard for us now to think of, of triangles as not being real. But, I, I, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's a very interesting. It must have seemed that way back then. Yeah, what are I these things? I don't think that they're real. <laughs> I, and I think it's probably the dominant view among philosophers of math that they're not real i mean that there are triangles are not real well in in a platonic sense i mean so most and then i would think that most philosophers of mathematics who do believe in mathematical objects sort of construe them as sets and that sets have a platonic existence. But the other example I was going to say, uh, Leibniz, he didn't believe in the existence of actual infinities or these actual infinitesimals, but they were a tremendous tool for solving uh, mathematical and physical problems. And it's similar, I guess. That's a great you analogy. You don't That's a great analogy. Yeah. Good. I'm glad. But you can't directly test the existence of a string, or you don't think that will be the case, but they're incredibly useful for solving these outstanding problems. I think it was my colleague, Subir Sachdev, who um, actually took my course when I was teaching string theory and then later went on and used ideas from string theory um, to solve some problems in condensed matter physics that oh that's great yeah so he he solved some problems in in condensed matter physics and you could have solved them using known techniques in con with hindsight you could have used other methods but you never would have put it together that way sort of insights from string theory and i i think it was him that said string theory is the is the is the calculus of modern theoretical physics. You know, it's a tool. It's a set of mathematical relations that is an indispensable tool for many enterprises in theoretical physics. Making your analogy to Leibniz more precise, yeah. Oh, great. Great. Well, toward 
M theory uh, brains and then the Kalabi Yao spaces that just came up again. One of the more unintuitive but thrilling aspects of string theory is that it requires more than the three macroscopic spatial dimensions we're all familiar with in everyday life and that fourth temporal dimension. But why does it require more dimensions and how do you visualize them? How many are there? And again, I imagine that, or I suspect that for at least a brief period, we can leave M theory and the potential of 11 dimensions aside, unless you think it's a worthwhile complication to bring in now. You know, interestingly, I think that question only has a technical answer. Um, okay. You know, you, you, you ask the question, um, can I, you know, string theory is a set of rules, uh, you know, one of the ways that modern physical theories are, are formulated uh, is you, you know, there are many kinds of questions you could ask. But one question you could ask is, if I throw an electron and a proton at each other and they interact, what comes out? That's a question the laws of physics are, is, are supposed to answer. And in fact, it's widely believed so um, that if you... It's widely believed that if you knew the answers to all such questions, like any set of incoming particles, throw them at each other at different velocities and so on, what will come out? It's widely believed, that's the so-called scattering problem, that if you, if you know the answer to every scattering problem, you know everything. That's one way. That's one way of writing down all the information, and um, that's how much you know. That point of view sort of started getting a foothold, sort of in the in the forties, maybe the thirties, even, um, and so. Um, you can ask, but in, in, if you want to talk about gravity, you have to include in the list of things you scatter gravitons, which are the particles of gravity. And so, if you could give the rules for scattering amplitudes involving gravitons, in some sense, you know everything if you give those rules. And so, string theory uh was a an algorithm for solving the scattering problem for anything including gravitons and you could not get self-consistent answers without either directly being in 10 dimensions or secretly being in 10 dimensions where you curled up some of them it's a technical answer um but it's interesting, so, you know, self-consistency drives us to it. Um, no, that's that's good. Because I, I was going to ask, I mean, 
why string theory as it currently exists makes extra dimensions necessary or alternatively, I mean, why would it be useless to search for versions of string theory without these extra dimensions to preserve our spatial intuitions? But you've already given the answer, which is that uh, consistency is the constraint. And yeah. that's why they're necessary. And so that's, but, that's good, right? Consistency is a good thing. We'd really like more of it. You know, what, what, what people were so high with how far we got with consistency that, you know, some people that there was a kind of hope start that started in the mid eighties that I don't think really, it sort of lingered on to around, around 2000 that somehow if we understood all the consistency constraints that there would just be one theory that made sense. I don't, I don't think many people are pursuing that idea anymore, but it was it was something that was on the table. Of course, that would have been amazing if it were true, um, but uh, doesn't seem to be true. One dimension, no. Well, I guess I have to say the pun was intended as I chose that word is of of the question as I initially put it that I don't think you answered is how you visualize or under, because you're, you do a lot of work visualizing, like with the Kalabi house spaces, visualizing these things. So how do you visualize the, the additional six dimensions and are they, maybe this is a good place to start. Are they also analogous to one another in the same way that our three macroscopic spatial dimensions are somewhat analogous to one another? Um, yeah, they, they, they are, um, you know, I, I do do a lot of visualizing, but, um, you know, visualizing has its limitations and ultimately one, what falls back to the equations, which, you know, the equations can have much more information in the than any pictorial image that we can carry in our minds but so what what do the curled up dimensions wh how small are they how do you how how can they be envisioned for people who haven't encountered the idea before well the natural size for them in there, there's kind of two ways you could ask the question. If you just kind of um, uh, say, say what would it, what would you generically expect? You'd expect that the size of the extra dimensions is, you know, ten to the minus thirty-three centimeters, which is, you know, a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a. It's tiny, right? That would be the natural size. Then um, there's a very interesting question of, okay, but could it logically be bigger? And what is the actual experimental? Forget about what's natural. What does, uh, after all, there are lots of things in our universe which aren't natural. We started out discussing the size of the cosmological constant, the Higgs mass, so 
maybe the dimensions are much bigger uh, than than you would naively expect. You know, just using Occam's razor, and you can ask the question: How big could they be without having a conflict? With experiment, We're, we know that they're not a meter across because then we just see them. You know, we could look in four different directions instead of three, and in one of them, if it were small, you know, if it was a circle, we'd see the back of our head. You know, uh, that doesn't happen. So they're not a meter. But how could big? How big could they be? Well, um, surprisingly big. So my my uh, Arkani Ahmed Diwali at Demopolis showed a long time ago. I think that was late nineties, maybe. When was that paper? Um, and also Lisa Randall um, took another, and 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 Robin Sundrum took another kind of take on this. Um, that surprisingly, the experimentalists, the experiments allow them to be big so big that it's not impossible we could see them experimentally. Now, it could happen. It, it, it could happen that you, um, you know, and there have been experiments done which put more and more stringent bounds. It's been, over the years, it's been shrinking. The experimental upper bounds on how big the dimensions could actually be. And um, I don't think they're going to, it's important to continue these experiments because we have to do everything we can. Uh, and they, these are really great experimentalists who are, who are doing this. Um, but um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not betting that they'll see them. I think extra dimensions could be there. They're a logical possibility, but there's no good reason they would want to be so big. Uh, I know that we're we're talking about dimensions right now, and n not strings or or brains of other dimensions. But you, you mentioned this idea of you could look and see the back of your hand. And for whatever reason that brings to my mind, and since we were talking about the possibility of observing strings that I think, I don't know if Witten, who is the, my understanding, because I'm, I'm not really in this field, he's the physics genius of our age has suggested that it's, it's a possibility that there could be strings out there that are, large enough on a cosmic scale that we could observe them through a telescope because the levels of energy at the B big bang could have produced them. So that's, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. Right. And indeed there was a, there was an exciting moment. There was an exciting moment when, when astronomers thought they'd seen something like that. Oh, um, really? From, from lensing of stars, I, that was after Witten's paper, I think, and that's a not you know that could have happened. It's not logically precluded. They could have 
you know, they could have measured the extra dimensions. They could have seen strings stretching across the sky. All those are logical possibilities. It's not precluded. And I think it's a sort of logically important aspect of the theory that you could, there's a big, that you could get evidence for it. It's, you know, there's some theories that, uh, you know, they don't make any predictions. They're interpretations. Uh, you know, there's no, you know, there's no experimental uh, you know, there's no there's no experimental uh, way to verify you know the Copenhagen versus the the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, so it it becomes more philosophy than than uh, that that than physics. So it's important that you could there could be a measurement that tell you tell you that string theory was actually right. They could suddenly pop on our plate someday and we'd find them and we'd be very happy. Um, but I'm not betting that that's going to happen. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, returning to our thread, pun, in, pun intended again, you have played an instrumental role in developing our understanding of Kalabi Yao shapes, which have come up a, a few times, and which I think also might help make sense of what these six-dimensional spaces are like that we're appending to our uh, more... Wait, those are the Kalabi Yao manifolds. Those are the six-dimensional spaces. Right, right. I, I guess I meant they might help us make sense of how to visualize them. But maybe, maybe you don't think so. But I was going to say is, is there a, I mean, talking about the geometry, but is there a simple way of explaining the basics of your work here and the relevance that these shapes have to string theory? Well, I can say something about them, but... Um... First of all, I think um, you can describe um, you can describe spaces um, by equations. So the simple example of that is if we have a a, a plane labeled by X and Y that all the points obeying X squared plus Y squared equals one lie on a circle. So that's one way of describing a circle. You start with a, just a flat chalkboard and then you have an equation X squared plus Y squared equals one and the points that obey that form a circle. So there's a map from equations of the right sort into uh, spaces, in this case, the space being the circle. If we were in three dimensions, we could have x squared plus y squared plus z squared equals one, that would be a sphere. Now, 
there are much more complicated equations and you can have whole sets of equations and that's a way of describing spaces. And that's a subject known as algebraic geometry. You describe spaces using algebra. And um, Columbiao spaces, among all the possible, you know, it's just a whole zoo of things you might try to describe. But I think it's fair to say that already in the 50s, Kalabi realized that um, there might be a very, and he made a conjecture, the Kalabi conjecture, that there might be a, a space with some very special properties that you could get a nice solution of. And this is an example, of course, of, of uh, interaction between mathematics and physics that you, you might, there was a very special kind of complicated, knotty, tied up space that might actually, you might actually be able to solve Einstein equation on that space. And um, these spaces had a lot of beautiful mathematical properties. And it's fair to say that it was definitely one of the prime topics in mathematics in the 20th century, um, understanding the spaces. And he made this conjecture, which, which Yao proved um, in the early 70s. And um, then we discovered that the conditions which led the math mathematicians to discover, I mean, mathematicians just like things that are beautiful. That's their only, that's yes, their only, do. yeah, that's their only criterion. They don't worry about experiment. And they don't worry about describing nature. You know, so, but so amazingly and very gratifyingly, we found some consistency conditions from string theory that after rewriting them and massaging them and putting them into the language of the mathematician turned out to be exactly the conditions that Kalabi had arrived on from a completely different point of view. And um, and the whose solutions to which had been proven by by Yao, so you kind of know you know you're on the right track, or you feel that you're on the right. It's like a signpost that you're on the right track when your work leads you somewhere to some territory that somebody else has been driven to from some other possibly completely different point of view. And that happened many times with string theory. This was one example of it. Uh, and it again, it happened a little bit later with Hawking's work. Things came together and, you know. Um, so, 
Um, but as far as visualizing what the spaces actually are, uh, uh, it's it's pretty hard to do. There is a Yao's hometown. I I I wanted to go with them to see it. I didn't quite make it. I might. Uh, sometime I'll go see it, but Yao's hometown, he's a very, very famous, he's famous to the whole world, but he's very, very, very famous in China. And the, his hometown uh, uh, in in Shenzhen, I think, uh, has a statue four meters high of a Columbia space. <laughs> Of an artist's rendition of Flavio space, so that's that's kind of the best that you could do. But I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, they're complicated space with a lot of knobs and handles and different ways to get from A to Z, and 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 uh, different minimal surfaces and uh, a lot of uh, beautiful inter. A lot of, a lot of very very intricate structural properties, and um, yeah. Well, maybe one way of making the Kalabiyao spaces more tangible for us, even if we can't visualize them, is explaining their relationship to the particles in the standard model and particularly they have a, a very neat relationship as I understand it to the three families of particles the quarks, leptons, and bosons that I think you played a role in, in discovering right um, yeah absolutely so um Okay, so you have to ask. I I I I told you before that um, I talked about how strings take on various disguises depending on exactly how they're vibrating and how or vibrating, rotating, whatever they're doing. And in that discussion, you know, strings before you start compactifying on Calabial spaces, that discussion was really about just 10-dimensional flat space. No no compactification. But now when you have a string on a Calabial space, there are a lot more things it can do. It can spread itself out. The string can kind of spread itself out and get in some kind of resonant... Um, cyclic orbit, you know, uh, where it uh, have you seen those I've never used this analogy before, but uh, <laughs> in airports now, there's some artist, I don't know his name, but they have these things where a ball starts at the top. These sculptures you see up at airports and stuff, they're usually like you know, 20 feet by 10 feet, 
a ball start at the top, roll down a coaster, it may go around like this, hit a lever, bounce, and wind its way around down. Have you seen those things? Like it's a Rube Goldberg type machine? Like a Rube Goldberg type machine, yeah. And you haven't seen these. Maybe they're out of out of fashion now. But there are many ways that things can move around, bounce off, different trajectories that they could have. Like imagine a string on a Calabiao space it can bounce off one corner and go to the third corner, twirl around a couple times, come back down, go to the fourth corner, and then if everything's arranged just right, it can have some special pattern that it'll just resonate and keep repeating. So the strings can do very interesting things when they're wandering around in a Calabiao space. And um, they're related, the interesting things that they can do are related to the topology of the Calabiao space. And topology we can think of as sort of the simplest example of a topology is like, uh, you know, a sphere, There's no handles on a sphere, but a surface of a donut, it's like got one handle. Then you can have a two-hole donut, so on. So you can have different topological surfaces. And so Calabiao spaces have a lot of intricate, interrelated topology, which provides for strings resonating uh, in, a, in a very coherent and cohesive way with the internal uh, Calabiao space. And all of this gets translated into structures that the mathematicians have spent the last century or two working out. It's it's very intricate. The fat textbooks on on how this this stuff uh, how this stuff works out. So we were able to take all that math and from it deduce the way that um, particles, the spectrum of particles. We we needed that to understand whether string theory on a Calabi-Hau space had electrons and quarks and the right numbers of them and so on. And even more beautifully, the next question we wanted to ask is, okay, now from the, the, I mean, it would be a gross oversimplification to say that the number of species of quarks, numbers of flavors of quarks is the number of knobs on the Calabi-Hau space, but it's it's some very complex version of that. Now, uh, the, then the next question you want to ask is, well, what if, how do these things bounce off each other? How do they interact? What are, as a physicist would say, what is the coupling between the electron and the photon or between the quark and the electron and the neutrino or whatever? Now, um, this turns out in the framework of string theory quite beautifully to be translated into another math question that the mathematicians had solved 
after a century or so of work. I mean, it wasn't a matter of just adding and subtracting. Uh, so uh, this has happened time and time again that it, now we come to expect it, that every time there's some question in string theory, uh, mathematicians have already solved it, except that every once in a while, uh, we come on a question that the mathematicians haven't solved. Then we go and talk to them and we say, hey, why haven't you guys solved this? And string theory suggests that the answer should be this. And, and then they'll go and they'll say, wow, that was a great question. Why didn't we think to ask that? And then they calculate for a while. And then every time this has happened, there's been uh, agreement and it's been stimulating both for the mathematicians uh, and for the physicists. But string theory has had a huge impact on modern mathematics. Um, yeah. Well, here is pretty much my last question that I have. And I mean, it's just come to me as you've been talking. But mathematician, you said that <laughs> mathematicians just like things that are beautiful. And you've just been talking a lot about math and geometry. And by this point, it should be clear to our non-string theoretician audiences, I'll, I'll put it that way, that there's a serious, I mean, non-trivial connection between string theory and mathematics. So Ed Witten, for example, won the, won the Fields Medal, which is the equivalent of the Nobel for mathematics. And beauty in mathematics, I think, has a serious epistemic component. We were talking a bit, I mean, Leibniz came up earlier. And one of the reasons, so Leibniz and Newton independently came up with the calculus. Uh, one version, well, let's say Leibniz wanted to preserve infinitesimals partially, even though he didn't believe they existed, but because they were beautiful and simplified the the apparatus in many ways. And if we look at a more modern example, I mean, Hilbert, David Hilbert was a finitist, but he famously said, we will not be expelled from Cantor's paradise because of the immense beauty and applicability of the vast realm of infinity that Cantor brought to mathematics. And all of this just makes me wonder, since you're as, as I put it, sort of an instrumentalist about string theory, or you use it as a tool to solve these problems, where aesthetics and your sense of mathematical or physical beauty, whether this plays a, a serious role for you in your work and the sorts of problems you pay attention to or how you solve problems or your intuitions about how problems will be solved. Yeah, well, um, you know, we, as I said, we don't, we don't, we don't have a roadmap um, uh, of how to, you know, find all the laws of nature, but we get signposts, and of course, those signposts can be interpreted in different ways. But um, you know, when a problem that's trying to solve a problem in physics and when you run into some beautiful mathematics along the way, 
or it leads you to some beautiful mathematics, or even better, it allows you to solve a problem. It gives you an insight that allows you to solve a problem in mathematics. Um, you feel you're, it's a signpost. It's, it's, it's some indication that you might be on the right track. Uh, so, yeah, when I run into some beautiful mathematics in my work, uh, you know, I feel encouraged. Um, and of course, I also love beautiful mathematics, but uh, <laughs> it's all right. But yeah. Well, Andy, this has been absolutely terrific. It was really a wonderful way to introduce string theory and some of its applications to to this show, and also to talk about some of its background and history. So I'm I'm really so thankful for your time and expertise. Thanks for doing this with me. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.